Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. In living history circles, we often talk about the big names like Jim Bridger and Jim Bowie, or Daniel Boone and Jedediah Smith. And I don't know why certain names throughout history are less celebrated when that person stood on equal footing with those big names. It's like they had a lousy public relations agent or something. And that's sort of why I wanted to do this podcast, to bring to light those underappreciated characters in history. Our discussion today is about one of those men who was equal in achievement to men like Jed Smith and Jim Bridger. He proved to be tough as nails, smart and even wily. He was incredible at keeping journals, and he was an accomplished poet. And most people only ever heard his name mentioned as the guy who sewed Jedediah Smith's head back together. His name is James Kleiman, and this is his story. Before we begin, though, I want to give you fair warning. This episode contains a lot of journal entries, and James Kleiman, like so many people from this day, left a lot to be desired in punctuation, spelling, and grammar. So I've taken liberties in filling in the blanks when words are missing or mispronounced, so you can follow along without me having to stop and explain the whole way through. James Kleiman was born on February 1st, 1792, in the northwest corner of Fauquier County, Virginia. His father, Philip Kleiman, and his mother, Lydia Hazel Kleiman, were farmers on land that they held a life lease on. The property itself was owned by his father's friend, General George Washington. And it was here that young James and several of his eight siblings learned to hunt and fish. Even though his father could farm on that property free for the rest of his life, it wasn't his property. He wanted to find land to call his own somewhere in the wild, untamed wilderness. So he moved his growing family to western Pennsylvania for the winter of 1807, when James was 15 years old. At this time, western Pennsylvania was still pretty wild and untamed, and Indian attacks were a constant threat to the settlers there. James, his father, and his brothers joined the community watch, and they served as a mounted militia protecting the settlements against Indian raiders. In the spring of the following year, 1808, the family moved farther into the wilderness of the Ohio Mountains, settling in Stark County, which is just south of present-day Akron. And here his father rented land to farm. James and his brothers then joined the militia there. His father was finally able to purchase property in 1811 in Stark County when James was 19. Then the War of 1812 kicked off, and James and his brother signed up to fight. He was already an accomplished Indian fighter, but James learned another skill there in the military that would stick with him for the rest of his days. He learned the basic principles of surveying. After the war was over, he continued to serve with the militia protecting settlers from Indian attacks. He also rented a farm near Greenville, Ohio, which is west of present-day Columbus, close to the Indiana border. Later, he moved to Jeromesville, Ohio, which is between Akron and Columbus, and he farmed there for a while. But this mundane life of being a farmer didn't hold much attraction for him. By 1818, he was completely bored with farming, so he traveled east to Pittsburgh to find work. There he was given the opportunity to travel to the very edge of the wilderness, known today as central Indiana, to clear land and to establish Indian trade networks. 
1820, he was contracted to supply surveyors with provisions. And it was while he was out on one of these job sites in the middle of nowhere that he got to actually help out and use his surveying skills. And he discovered that he was a natural at it. And with what he had learned in the military, he decided this is what he wanted to do with his life. In fact, at one point, he was delivering provisions to a job site in the wilderness when the boss fell ill. And Jim Kleiman took over and finished the job. And that was it. He was hooked. But being a surveyor wasn't an easy field to break into without the backing of a notable person in this day. So, desperate for work, in 1821, he took a job as a bookkeeper at a salt factory on the Little Vermilion River for two men named Treat and Blackman. It just so happened that Colonel William S. Hamilton, the son of the famous founding father Alexander Hamilton, came into town looking for a surveyor for the Little Vermilion River. So Jim signed up. Hamilton hired him again in 1822 to survey the Sangamon River and told Kleiman when he was done to come to St. Louis to collect his pay. So in the spring of 1823, James Kleiman is standing there waiting for his paycheck when he ran into this really charismatic guy named William Henry Ashley. It's because of that random meeting that we know what Jim Kleiman even looked like. He's described in various Trappers and Traders journals as being nearly six foot tall, erect and straight, sparse build and firm gait, sandy complexion, high, slightly receding forehead, a small mouth inclined to pucker, with good teeth, quiet-spoken, patient and modest, agreeable, with a dry, ironic wit, and even humorous. One man actually equated him to looking just like George Washington without the wig. William Henry Ashley himself called Jim Kleiman one of the most intelligent and efficient men he'd ever met. In fact, Ashley was so impressed by Jim Kleiman, he hired him to work as a recruiter and told him to go out and find young bucks willing to work as hunters and trappers up the Missouri River. And Ashley paid him $1 a day. Those young bucks who signed up were names like Jed Smith, Jim Bridger, Thomas Fitzpatrick, William Sublette, Jim Beckworth, David E. Jackson, and even the someday famous keelboat captain Mike Fink. They all signed up with Jim Kleiman. After filling the roster of Ashley's 100, Jim Kleiman accompanied them up the Missouri River. In the Rendezvous episode, we talked about the war with the Arakara at length, so I'll only give you a quick review here. The rival Missouri Fur Company had slighted the Arakara Indians earlier in the year, and the Arakara, or Rees, as they're sometimes called, were still peeved about it when Ashley's Hundred stopped at their camp to trade in August of 1823. After several failed trade attempts, the Rees opened fire on these unprepared mountain men. Chaos ensued, and the white men were trying to run from the showers of arrows and bullets. Everyone was scrambling to get to the safety of the boats. Several men were stranded on a sandbar in the middle of the river as those bullets and arrows whizzed by their heads. Jim Kleiman was one of those men who was trying to make it to the boats. He looks over and he sees one of the boats drifting empty down the river, and he makes for it. In his own words, he tells us what happened next. I, seeing no hopes of skiffs or boats coming ashore, left my hiding place behind a dead horse, 
ran upstream a short distance to get the advantage of the current, and, conceiving myself to be a tolerable strong swimmer, stuck the muzzle of my rifle in my belt, the lock over my head with all my clothes on. But not having made sufficient calculation for the strong current, was carried past the boat within a few feet of the same. One Mr. Thomas Eddy, who was hiding on board the boat, saw me, but the shot coming thick, he did not want to venture from behind the cargo box, and so could not reach me with a setting pole, which he held in his hands. Knowing now, or at least thinking, that I had the river to swim, my first aim was to rid myself of all my encumbrances, and my rifle was the greatest. In my attempt to draw it over my head, it slipped down, the lock catching in my belt. Coming to the surface to breathe, I found it hindered worse than it did at first. Making one more effort, I turned the lock sideways, and it slipped through, which gave me some relief. But still finding myself too much encumbered, I next unbuckled my belt and let go my pistols. Still continuing to disengage myself, I next let go my ball pouch, and finally one sleeve of my hunting shirt, which was buckskin and held an immense weight of water. When rising to the surface, I heard the voice of encouragement saying, Hold on, Clyman, I will soon relieve you. This from Reed Gibson, who had swam in and caught the skiff, the men had let go afloat, and was but a few rods from me. I was so much exhausted that he had to haul me into the skiff, where I lay for a moment to catch breath. When I arose to take the only remaining oar, Gibson called, Oh God, I am shot, and fell forward in the skiff. Jim Clyman knew Reed Gibson was wounded, but he encouraged him to keep paddling as the two men tried to maneuver the boat towards the far bank. With several Arakaras swimming after them in hot pursuit, the men clambered out of the skiff and onto the bank. Reed Gibson knew his wounds were mortal, so he took a stand to give Jim a chance to escape. It took Jim Clyman nearly an hour to lose his pursuers over land, and when he finally made it back to shore, the rest of the company's survivors were gathered there waiting for him. Sadly, Reed Gibson was suffering greatly from a massive shotgun hole in his gut, and he died within the hour. And while Jim Clyman sat by his friend's corpse, sobbing openly that this man had given up his life to save Jim's own, he started to rethink the career choice he had made. He had plenty of time to ponder it, too, because it took several days for the men to be rescued by their boss Ashley and the army of Colonel Leavenworth out of Fort Atkinson. After their rescue, Clyman's party continued on, led by the recently promoted Captain Jedediah Smith. For days, they struggled to find food and water, and after almost a week, they entered the Black Hills near present-day South Dakota. But this area is only sparsely populated with vegetation, and their horses began to falter at the lack of proper grazing. So the men dismounted and proceeded on foot as they led their remaining pack horses through the thicket heading up the mountain. If you listen to the Jedediah Smith episode back in June, you'll recall that the captain emerged from the thicket right into the face of a very angry grizzly bear. The grizzly sprang at Smith, bit down on his head, and picked him up off the ground by his skull. He tossed Smith sideways and sent him sprawling. Then he grabbed Jed Smith by the middle of his body, thankfully catching the ball pouch and Jed's hunting knife in his jaws, and the bear began squeezing his massive jaws closed. He shook Smith like a rag doll, 
He didn't break the skin, but he did break several ribs, leaving Smith gasping for air as he clapped his hands to his bloody scalp. Jim Kleiman tells us that the men had been coming up the mountain strung out in single file behind Smith, so it took several minutes for them to catch up to where Smith should be. When they got there, they found their captain laying in a puddle of blood, gasping for air, holding his detached scalp and ear onto his head with bloody hands. Jim Kleiman, being cool and collected, followed Jed Smith's instructions as the captain very calmly explained how to sew the detached scalp back together. With a needle and thread, Kleiman reattached Smith's scalp and ear. There is a rumor that Jim actually sewed the ear on upside down, but I found no verification of that being true. It took about two weeks for Jed Smith to recover enough to proceed into the mountains. During that time, Jim Kleiman explored and mapped out the region around their camp. One of his discoveries was a petrified forest. And anyone who listened to the Jim Bridger episode may remember Bridger's favorite campfire story about the petrified forest with the petrified birds singing petrified songs. This is where that story comes from. Bridger wasn't actually with this party when Kleiman was exploring but Trapper Moses Harris was. And years later, the men are all sitting together at a restaurant, reliving the good old days over drinks. And Moses Harris told the story of finding this petrified forest. He jokingly said that the birds were turned to stone with their mouths open as if they were about to sing. And Jim Bridger took that story and turned it into a first-hand account to retell to his many fireside admirers when he was working as a guide which just goes to prove that the tall tales of today's buckskinners around a rendezvous campfire is keeping with tradition. After Jed's two-week recovery, the party continued on to meet the Crow tribe in the Wind River Valley, and they arrived late in November of 1823. Here they met up with fellow trapper William Sublette and his party, and they spent the next several months at the winter camp. But by early February of 1824... Smith and Sublette's parties had grown tired of the incessant demands of the Crow tribesmen and decided to leave. The Crow had told them about a way through the mountains into the Green River Valley below, but after many attempts, the parties found that way to be blocked by tens of feet of snow. So the parties returned to the Crow camp, and the Crow gave them another set of directions, this time through what will become known as the South Pass. Kleiman was in that group that would rediscover this soon-to-be-famous route through the Rocky Mountains. Shortly after the group left the camp the second time, the worst of winter fell upon the valley. For weeks, they struggled to find food, and the men were in genuine danger of starving to death. On top of the multiple feet of snow that accompanied the storms, the bitter sub-zero cold and extremely high winds were brutal, often completely blowing away any exposed fires the men tried to build for warmth. At one point, Jim Kleiman and William Sublette were out hunting, and both men were nearly frozen. Sublette collapsed in the snow, and Jim Kleiman saved his life by keeping him moving. He forced William Sublette to stay awake, and he force-fed him as they walked, all the while bringing back extra meat to feed his other party members. Jim Kleiman was the guy who saved the men of Ashley's Hundred from perishing in the South Pass on their first trip through it. 
By February 20th, 1824, the men had made it into the Green River Valley. So Captain Jed Smith split the party up to trap the streams more efficiently. One group included Jed Smith and seven men, while Jim Kleiman and Thomas Fitzpatrick led the second party. Trapping was going very well for Kleiman's group. They had plenty of meat and water, and everything was going swimmingly. They were doing so well that when a band of Shoshone Indians came upon them asking for food, the trappers offered their extra meat to the Shoshones, who proceeded to set up camp for the night and spent a wonderful evening sharing stories around the fire. In the morning, the trappers awoke to find the Shoshone had left in the night and took all of the mountain men's horses with them. Now they were forced to proceed on foot. Ironically, a week later, they came upon the same party of Shoshone, and after offering them more meat and gifts, threatened to whoop their butts if they didn't give the horses back. Having retrieved their horses, the party carried on, and eventually Jim Kleiman split off from the rest of the group to do some surveying and exploring. The plan was to meet Thomas Fitzpatrick and his party several days down the road, where they would continue to Fort Atkinson together. But... Jim was setting up his camp at the mouth of the Sweetwater River when a large war party moved into the other side of the river. Rightly calculating his chance of survival to be zero in a direct confrontation, he tried to throw off any chance of tracking him by walking backwards in meandering paths back and forth across the sandy ground. I would have loved to see him doing this. When he reached solid rock and a cliff face, he climbed up into a strand of willows at the top of the cliff and out of harm's way. Meanwhile, the war party below lost their minds trying to figure out what these crazy tracks bent. During the next 11 days, he watched from this high perch. The natives made no effort to leave, and at one point, Jim watched dejectedly as a familiar shape of a white man's bull boat went bobbing past in the river below. He's debated his chances of successfully retrieving that boat without being seen, but by the time he had played the scenarios out in his head, the boat was long gone. By the twelfth day, he'd grown bored, and he decided that Fitzpatrick and his men weren't coming, so Jim left his safe haven and began to make his way in search of any white settlements. After walking for days, he began to tire of the whole scene and decided to try something new that he had read about. Now, back in this day, there was something called creasing. If a hunter wanted to stun an animal rather than kill it, he would shoot very close to the spine. And if done properly to a wild horse, this supposedly scared the animal, causing it to drop to the ground stunned. And it supposedly shocked the animal long enough for a person to slip a halter over its head and capture it. I know, it's awful. Just wait. So Jim Kleinman kills a buffalo, and he fashions a halter out of the leather. Then he hides at a nearby watering hole, and he sits and waits for the wild horses to come drink. After a few days, a huge black stallion came down to drink at the water's edge. He drew up his rifle, steadied his exhausted, aching body, and exhaled slowly as he pulled the trigger. The horse dropped to the ground, and Jim sprung from his hiding place in triumphant excitement, his newly fashioned halter in hand. He ran up and excitedly slipped the halter over the horse's head. It was only then that he realized he had shot it straight through the spine and paralyzed it. So, after putting it out of its misery, he begrudgingly walked on alone. 
Several lonely miles later, he decided it was better to be captured and tortured by hostile Indians rather than wander the wilderness with no one to talk to. So he walked right into the middle of the first Indian village he came to and gave himself up. To be honest, his sudden appearance scared the bejesus out of the occupants of the village, and he was quickly relieved of all his possessions. But thankfully, he was taken in by an older man and his son, who either thought him to be profoundly brave or incredibly dim-witted. Either way, they protected him from the less savory characters of the tribe who wanted to execute him. And all they wanted in return was his long blonde hair, which he gladly cut off and handed over. They fed him, they gave him water, handed him back his rifle, and sent him on his way. On foot, of course. He traveled another day before hunger began to gnaw at him again. And at one point, he was so hungry, he came upon two badgers who were fighting over a burrow. He drew up to shoot, but the gun jammed. Grabbing a nearby horse femur, he ran about like a crazy man, chasing these now fleeing badgers, and proceeded to beat both badgers to death. Making a small fire, he roasted them both and ate as much as he could before moving on. But now, with an overly full belly, he began to feel the full effects of the fatigue resulting from weeks of overtaxing his body. Exposure to the elements had blistered and peeled the skin on his face. Prolonged dehydration caused his fingers to split, and his mouth to feel like it was constantly full of chalk. His lips split open and they bled, but he refused to stop walking. His feet were rubbed sore where the moccasins were worn away, leaving gaping holes. His nerves were frayed and every little sound made him jump and jerk to see what was pursuing him. But still he refused to stop walking. At one point, he was dragging himself along, half delirious, half asleep, and he stumbled and fell. When he rose again, he had accidentally gotten turned around and was going back the way he'd come. After a long time on the trail, he saw a familiar landscape through his heavy lids, and he realized his mistake. Looking down at the trail, he saw his own shuffling footprints and had to force himself to stop and turn around. After what seemed like an eternity, he crested the hill to see Fort Atkinson in the valley below, the American flag flapping in the wind overhead. In his journal, he wrote, The stars and stripes came so unexpected that I was completely overcome. Being on descending ground, I sat, contemplating the scene. I made several attempts to raise, but as often fell back for the want of strength to stand. After some minutes... I began to breathe easier, but certainly no man ever enjoyed the sight of our flag better than I did. It took several moments and even more attempts to get himself to the front gate of the fort because he kept getting woozy and passing out. After 80 days and 600 miles of trials and tribulations, he made it through the gates of Fort Atkinson, and the commander, one General Leavenworth, was kind enough to put him on the payroll for the next two weeks so he could receive clothing and food rations while he recovered. Ten days later, Fitzpatrick and his two remaining party members stumbled into the front gate in worse condition than Jim Kleiman had been in, having traveled almost the exact same treacherous trail that Jim Kleiman had. If you listen to the Thomas Fitzpatrick episode back in July, 
You may recall where Thomas and his two companions accidentally flipped their bull boats and sunk all their fur bundles. The empty boats and their supplies washed downstream. The men had to spend the next several days spreading those furs out on the prairie to dry before caching them at a place called Independence Rock. There's some debate, but it's possible that the bull boat that Jim Kleiman watched float by was one of the boats that these men had lost upriver. And the reason Fitzpatrick's party never came for Jim was because of the delay in drying the furs, digging the cache, and then trying to survive the rest of the trip to Fort Atkinson without starving to death. After Fitzpatrick caught up with Kleiman at the fort, they returned to the North Platte to recover those fur packs that were cached at Independence Rock. The men then packed those furs onto mules and trekked them back to Fort Atkinson, where they sold them to a competing trader named Lucien Fontenelle. In exchange, he resupplied the gear that the men would need to get back to Ashley. Well, it just so happened that Ashley arrived at Fort Atkinson soon after all of his furs were sold, and the whole party, including Kleiman and Fitzpatrick and 22 other men, left Fort Atkinson for the mountains early in November of 1824. The plan was to go back on the same route that Jim Kleiman had used to come into Fort Atkinson. But the group no sooner started out when they ran into trouble. Knee-deep snow and fierce winds again caused shortages of food and grazing vegetation. The men were beginning to show signs of suffering from the hunger and the extreme cold, and the horses began to falter as well. Ashley had hoped to obtain food and additional horses at the camp of some friendly Pawnee, but their camp wasn't where he thought it should be. It's important to remember that most Plains tribes moved their camps regularly to keep from exhausting the natural resources and for shelter during the winter. So it's likely that Ashley had the right location, but the Pawnee had already moved on. Rations were reduced to a half pint of flour per man per day, along with the meat from the horses that died of starvation and exposure. At the forks of the Platte River, they finally caught up with the Pawnee, and they were finally able to trade for food and fresh horses. Ashley now decided they would follow the South Platte River on a route that no one in the party had ever traveled before. This new course would take them high into the mountains at extreme elevations, and the trail would certainly be choked closed in places with ice and snow. But Ashley believed his company could handle it, and he was right. They succeeded in passing through the mountains and arrived on the highlands of Laramie Plains, where there was finely grazing vegetation for the horses and herds of buffalo, antelope, and other grazers for food for his men. To put this in perspective, the average elevation for the Laramie Plains is 8,000 feet above sea level, and some of the surrounding mountains are 10 to 12,000 feet in elevation. And this group did this in the dead of winter, they were able to start trapping beaver, but because their horses had become so depleted, progress was extremely slow. But they moved in the general direction of the north and west, and by late March, they were near the South Pass once more. On April 22, 1825, Ashley split his party into four groups. Kleiman was chosen to be the leader of a group of six men and was instructed to trap along the Green River. He was also supposed to keep his eyes peeled for Jed Smith's group, who had wintered over somewhere in the mountains. The plan was for Ashley to go ahead of the other parties and to leave trail markings along the way. 
Kleinman's trappers would then follow that trail to the predetermined site on Henry's Fork. And right on time, Kleinman's group arrived around July 1st, 1825. This was the first rendezvous. So, if you've listened to the other Mountain Men's episodes, you may recall that every one of these guys was out trapping or hunting, but they were also exploring and surveying and mapping out uncharted territories and basically opening up the map, to put it in gamer terms. They were always on the lookout for new and unexploited hunting grounds, but there was something else they were looking for, the Rio Buenaventura. Back in this day, it was believed that there was a massive river that ran east to west from the Pacific Ocean to somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. And if this were true, it would open up a trade superhighway, just like the Missouri and Mississippi rivers had done in the middle of the country. So every trader and their brother wanted to find that golden thoroughfare. And while it didn't actually exist, any river that was brackish or salty was often erroneously believed to be the missing clue to finding this mythological river to the Pacific. So imagine what they thought when they came upon the Great Salt Lake. Well, this massive body of salty water must be the way to the Buenaventura River. So four men decided to prove that it was true. In the spring of 1826, Louis Vasquez, Moses Harris, Henry Frabe, and Jim Kleinman paddled a canoe the entire way around the Great Salt Lake. It took 24 days to do it and it completely busted the myth that the Buenaventura River existed. And believe it or not, they almost died of dehydration on the trip because there was no water to drink. Now, no one is really sure what Jim Kleiman did with the remainder of his time in the mountains between 1826 and 1827 because he didn't chronicle any of it. But when he came out of those mountains in late September, he had a boatload of furs to cash in. On October 17, 1827, he sold off his stockpiles and he cashed in 278 pounds of beaver fur at $4.50 a pound. That netted him $1,251, and he left William Henry Ashley's company to start a new life. We know that he first returned to Danville, Illinois, where on March 16, 1829, he bought 75 acres and he set up his two brothers to manage his farms for him, because we all know he didn't like farming. On a side note here, I do my darndest to verify each and every claim that resources make. If you're into cool historical sites, the way I find proof of claims such as that one is through the Bureau of Land Management site, where you can put in a person's name and a time period and see the actual documents they signed when they purchased the land or were given the property in the grant. This is a wonderful resource for genealogists. So I'll put a link on the website for you. Anyways, Kleiman then went into partnership with his friend Daniel Beckwith, and the two men set up one of the first general stores in Danville, Illinois. But when the Black Hawk War broke out in 1832, Kleiman joined the fight. He served under a guy you might know by the name of Abraham Lincoln. And he fulfilled various roles in the military, and the war was finally over, he left in 1834 as a decorated colonel of the Wisconsin militia, and he retired from the military at the age of 40. 
By January of 1835, he was living in Dodge County, Wisconsin. Here he entered into a partnership with a man named Hiram Ross to lay claim to some of this vast wilderness in Wisconsin. And it's here that he helped hew out a little town that we today call Milwaukee. But by the fall of that year, this new town had become more and more crowded, and Jim Kleiman made the decision to venture north with his old friend Ellsworth Burnett. They left on November 4, 1835, and here their resources get confused. In one source, it says that they bought a canoe from a native woman whose husband and son were away. When the menfolk got back, they were irate that she had sold it, and they made the motion to go get their canoe back. Another source says the man and his son were avenging the death of the woman's brother, who had been killed by a soldier at Fort Winnebago years ago. And yet another simply says on the second day out, they were attacked by two Native American men near present-day city of Teresa in Dodge County. In all of the stories, however, it says that Burdette was crouched down making a fire, and Jim Kleiman was out scrounging up firewood and had left his shotgun back at camp. The son, or one of the grown men, it makes no difference, shot Burnett dead in the first shot. Jim Kleiman heard the peal of the rifle and went running back to camp. The father then shot Kleiman in the arm, breaking it cleanly. Jim ducked and weaved as the son drew up his own shotgun against him, and he unloaded it right into Kleiman's thigh. Jim Kleiman ran into the woods as fast as his legs could carry him. The two attackers pursued him for nearly an hour, and at one point they stood on top of the very log that Jim was hiding under. The pursuers eventually gave up and left, taking his shotgun with them. But to say Jim was angry was an understatement. After trying to bandage his injuries the best he could, it took him two and a half grueling, painful days to make it the 50 miles back to Milwaukee so he could receive proper medical treatment. But something interesting happened to Jim's reputation during this time. Every Indian for a hundred miles around had heard the story, and word had spread that that gentle giant was so furious that he was plotting revenge. In fact, according to the AmericanHeritage.com website, a chronicler wrote, and it might truthfully be said that the fear of him was upon every Indian then here, for not one of them would remain in town 20 minutes after they got sight of him. A whole regiment of soldiers could not have inspired them with a greater desire for the solitude of the wilderness than did the presence of this one man. The story became well known in the region, and years later, when the immigrants started to settle this area, they named one of the towns Kleiman after this legendary mountain man. Now, according to the website mman.us, the Mountain Man Library, it says that while he was living in this area in 1835, that he apparently told a friend of one of his experiences in the mountains with the Blackfoot Indians. He said that he and another trapper were working in Blackfoot country. To avoid detection, they would visit their traps only during the early morning or late evening and would hide during the day. Early one evening, while riding through some thick timber, they found themselves in the midst of a Blackfoot encampment. Kleiman, with his usual cool and self-possessed demeanor, rode straight up to the chief's lodge and made signs indicating friendship and claimed that the two had ridden there on purpose to pass the night. Well, the chief wasn't exactly friendly, 
but his women did serve food to the two trappers. So as they ate and smoked their pipes, Clyman, who understood some of the Blackfoot language, heard the chief tell some of the warriors that these two trappers should be killed. Clyman warned his companion. As soon as it was almost dark, Clyman and his companion leapt to their feet and ran for the river, followed closely by the Blackfoot Indians, who were firing arrows and shooting balls at the retreating trappers. Clyman jumped into the river and made it across, and there he hid under a divot in the bank on the opposite side. He waited for the Indians to lose interest and return to their camp. His fellow trapper, though, apparently did not survive, and he was never seen or heard from again. We know from land records that in 1836, he again partnered with Hiram Ross, this time to build a new sawmill near Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. And it's here that he began to keep records for the company in ledgers. But something really cool also happened. It was here that Jim Kleiman also began to fill those ledgers with musings and poetic writings, philosophical thoughts on subjects like time and matter, space, even the history of Rome's decline, and he would write about the people he saw around the mill. He wrote, Of all people, it seems to me, those are the most tiresome, who never converse on any subject but their misfortunes. The mill endeavor must have been successful, because he bought more land in Milwaukee again on August 10, 1837, and then more in partnership with another man named William McKibben. And six years later, In 1843, he bought 160 acres more in Milwaukee in partnership with a man named William Woodward. By the spring of 1844, though, he began experiencing a nagging, lingering cough, and it started to make him think back on his younger, healthier days in the wilderness. He was always one who grew bored of being in one place for too long anyways, so Jim Kleiman packed up and went traveling. He first made his way down through Arkansas and then continued on to Independence, Missouri, where he found immigrants assembling for the passage to Oregon. And it was here in early May of 1844 that he reunited with one of his old trapping buddies, Moses Harris, who was serving as a guide for one of those parties heading to the Rockies. So Jim signed up to go to Oregon. And here I'd like to take a detour for a quick minute. Jim Kleiman kept a detailed diary, chronicling every day on the trail to Oregon. And he kept detailing until July of 1846, two entire years of everything from weather reports, rosters of immigrants, what they ate, and the daily trials they faced. Then, after he gets to Oregon and moves from one town to another to another, he remarks on the government the economy, the laws, the habits and practices of the people. It's a remarkable look at what life was like in this day. For anyone who wants the absolute best close-up and personal record of what life was like during this period, this is the journal to read. You can find these diary entries in a book entitled James Kleiman, American Frontiersman, 1792 to 1881. It was published twice, once in 1928 and once in 1960. You want the one edited by Charles L. Camp, C-A-M-P. That's the good book. In fact, you can get this book for free if you're signed up for the Internet Archives. And if you're not signed up, please consider it. Access is free, and while there's no sponsorship here, it opens up a whole world of documents and media to you. 
Uh, I will also give you that link on the website. So back to Jim's story. After arriving in Oregon in October of 1844, he spent the next year and a half traveling around Oregon and California. He was 52 years old at this point, and he'd seen many things in his tough life. And now he was just enjoying being a tourist and sightseeing as he roamed around the West Coast. But something else began to catch his eye. The ladies. His journals began to reflect how attractive the ladies are, and he begins to express thoughts of settling down and raising a family, and giving up his wandering ways. He's terribly lonely, so he gets himself a dog, though he never does tell us what the dog's name is. By 1845, Jim is living in Yamhill County, Oregon, according to the census and his own diary. We know from his entries that he was keeping a close eye on the current events of the day. And we know he was in constant contact with the people at Fort Sutter. So he's hired on by the U.S. Indian agent at Sutter's Fort in Oregon, a man named Elijah White. And he's tasked with delivering documents to the U.S. consul in California, a guy by the name of Thomas Larkin. An incident had taken place at the fort, and the well-educated son of a Walla Walla chief was killed. Elijah White was sending Jim Kleiman and his faithful mutt to California with documents that requested an investigation be started. Kleiman was to lend any help the consul might need. But the consul, Thomas Larkin, washed his hands of the whole thing and sent the whole issue to the desk of the governor of California, who did absolutely nothing about it. And this really frosted Jim Kleiman. Had it been a white man killed, it would certainly have been investigated properly and quickly. But then, Jim was getting fed up with much of what he saw in his travels through California and Oregon. White settlers traveling the trail were shooting Indians with no provocation. Lazy Californians were keeping natives and Mexicans as proverbial slaves, treating them as less than human while they themselves lounged on their porches. Even at Fort Sutter, he was disgusted by the way Sutter fed his Indian workers, in four-foot troughs like hogs, while the starving workers were grappling for food like wild men. He'd seen enough. And he started looking for the first opportunity to get the heck out of Oregon. It was at that point that a group of families were heading east after spending the winter in California sunshine, and they stopped at Sutter's Fort before entering the Sierra Nevada mountains. So Jim and his mutt joined the group, preparing to leave town. But before they did, he was approached by John Sutter, who tried to hire him to park himself along that overland trail at the fork and convince all the people headed for Oregon to try the new California trail instead. Well, the party eventually moved out, following a new trail that they had read about in a pamphlet that was circulating around California. It was produced by a guy named Lansford Hastings. I think I've just felt a collective groan from the listeners who know their history. Lansford Hastings was an ambitious Ohio attorney who had come up with, air quotes, a shortcut across Utah and through the Sierra Nevadas to take the immigrants into California faster. In fact, he published his route in books and pamphlets and shipped them all through the East and West Coast so that everybody would know about it. Well, Jim Kleiman and the party took that soon-to-be-infamous Hastings cutoff 
on the way out of the Sierra Nevadas. That shortcut only saved them a week of time. But the trail was so difficult that they struggled the whole way. And Jim was very certain that a loaded wagon would not make the trip at all. On top of those trials, Jim Kleiman's dog was hot and thirsty and decided to jump into a small lake he'd found, except that it was a fissure of boiling water and the poor thing scalded himself to death. Jim was heartbroken. Later that year, Kleiman was headed east and he was camped along the North Platte River in eastern Wyoming. And here he spent the evening talking with an immigrant group headed west. One of the leaders of that group was a man by the name of James Reed, who had been in Kleiman's unit during the Black Hawk War. So they had a nice little reunion. In the conversation that night, Jim strongly advised against the Hastings cutoff. He detailed the trials that he himself had experienced and explained the problems they would face. But this group leader, Reed, and his co-leader, George Donner, refused to listen, stating that the pamphlet assured them it would save them considerable amounts of time. With that pamphlet in hand, and the assurance of other mountain men like Jim Bridger, the Reed and Donner party continued on the Hastings cutoff, only to be delayed so long They were caught in the Sierra Nevadas over the winter of 1846 and 47 and had to resort to dire measures to survive. Most of them did not. I just want to read something unrelated, but it will put something in perspective here. And this is why his journal is such a treasured resource of information. On June 23, 1846, Jim Kleiman counted 11 wagons crossing the prairie. The following day, the 24th, another 50. The next day, 66 wagons. On the 26th, 91 wagons. On the 27th, 104 wagons. For those of you not counting, in five days' time, 322 wagons carried white settlers across the prairie headed west. And those are just the ones that he saw. That should give you an idea of how many people were willing to make this howering journey to a new life. And speaking of new lives, Jim Kleiman hung around Wisconsin for the winter of 1847, debating what he wanted to do with his new life. But by the spring of 1848, he found himself back in Independence, Missouri. Here he became a guide for a small party of immigrants, mostly members of a single family named the McCombs, bound for California. The group left Missouri around the 1st of May and arrived in Napa, California, on September 5th. On the journey over the mountains, the group had heard of the recent discovery of gold in California. Stories of thousands of people making up to $300,000 a day in the gold mines drove the emigrants to move as quickly as possible into the land of this new El Dorado. Once Jim Clement got his party into the city of Napa, They hired him on to help them get their new ranch set up. And during that time, he fell in love with one of the younger daughters, Hannah, who was 30 years younger than him. Their marriage was the first one celebrated in Napa, California on August 22, 1849. And on March 6, 1850, Jim and Hannah had their own land a mile north of Napa near present-day Union Station, and they began the settled life of ranchers and farmers. They had five children, but sadly, as scarlet fever blazed through the Napa Valley, 
four of those children fell ill and died. Jim Kleiman continued to keep his musings in a little diary until his 80th year. It shows he was still going strong in his twilight days, too, sowing barley, pruning his orchards, and hauling in firewood. When his only surviving daughter, Lydia, married, she and her husband stayed with the Kleimans and took care of them in their twilight years. Lydia also took care of his writings and musings. She stored them away and kept them in pristine condition in neat little boxes in her attic. And that's why today we are able to read his letters and his journals. Then sometime during the night of December 27, 1881, 89-year-old Jim Kleiman silently departed this realm and joined his comrades of the mountains who had all gone before him. I leave you with this piece of poetry that Jim wrote for Decoration Day, which is the precursor to Memorial Day, during his final year of life. Strew flowers o'er the hero's head, who for your country fought and bled. He fought for equal rights for all. Let raining flowers o'er him fall. He died your country's life to save. Strew flowers o'er the hero's grave. That's it for this week's episode of the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I encourage everyone to check out Jim Kleiman's journals and download it for yourselves using the links on the website at fursandfrontiers.com. It's an amazing read. Thanks for spending time with me once more. Join me again in a few weeks for the next episode. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry. (laughs) 